Hey, everybody, and welcome to the podcast that I am entitling The Troubadour Travesty, which is a review of the Counting Crows show on June 5th, 2023 at the Troubadour Theater. Uh, again, my name is Graham. I'll be the host for this particular podcast. We do have a special guest coming on momentarily, and we'll get to that in a minute. But just to tee things up here, this podcast is hyper-specific. Uh, again, about this review of this show that just happened uh, this past Monday, actually, as we record this on Thursday, of the County Crows private show put on by Sirius XM Radio in Hollywood, California at the famed Troubadour Theater, I believe you would say. And uh, for those of you that don't know me, you may be asking, um, why should I care what your review is of this particular concert? And frankly, I don't know that you should. But I will tell you that I have certainly spent a great deal of time uh, in my life invested in the County Crows. I've seen over 50 shows at this point. Um, and that sounds crazy, partially because it, it is. Um, but also, if you think about it, I've been going to shows for about 30 years, right? So my first concert that I saw was in 1996 for the Recovering the Satellites uh, tour. And I've seen them um, many times, obviously, in between. I've seen them in Boston. I've seen them in Hartford, New York, L.A., wineries, San Francisco, Warfield, you know, you name it. I've seen it. But this particular show really was, um, you know, in my mind, potentially one of the best shows that I would have ever seen from the County Crows. Now, obviously, you can tell from the title. Uh, I'm not sure that was fulfilled. But, you know, this show at a tiny theater for a band that's been around this long was kind of really important in the history of the Counting Crows um, uh, oeuvre, if you will. So I, I know I didn't probably say that correctly. But anyway, that is why we're spending some extra time. Now, will this podcast evolve and involve more Counting Crows deep dives? Probably, yes. Uh, will it include other things? Potentially. But for today, we're really just focused in on, on this show. So with that said... A quick recap of the show and, and some just details before we get to our guest here. You know, this was a show, again, at the Troubadour Iconic Theater. This is a place that a lot of bands playing on the way up. But it's my understanding that the County Crows actually never played the Troubadour before. That's contrary to what Adam said during the show. He said, oh, we used to play here back in the day. But they billed it as never having played the Troubadour before. I've not seen any documentation that they did play the Troubadour before. Um so this was a pretty big deal. And again, 500 person space, private show in a city that the County Crows had some really uh, memorable times in, specifically when they were writing Long December and Adam had this house in the hills and the whole deal. So there's a lot going on in this show. And the idea was that this show is going to be a radio broadcast shared on Sirius XM, also played on the Howard Stern channel, um, Howard Stern channel on Sirius XM. And so they were recording the whole thing. And you know, this was the type of show where there's kind of a, it's always like a Star Wars bar for Counting Crows show, right? It's a lot of interesting people. You got some really old people. You got people like myself that aren't exactly spring chicken, but, you know, uh, you know, kind of middle aged. Then you've got some really young people and the band appeals to a lot. You also have some celebrities, right? So we had uh, most notably Cindy Crawford was in the audience with her husband. We had Bill Simmons, the podfather was there. Uh, we had E from Entourage, I think. There's some random celebs. You know, I wouldn't say any like A-listers, but I would put Cindy Crawford in the iconic um, group. So that was kind of the vibe. And I would just say, before we uh, kind of move on here, that 
Cat Corbett, who's a legendary radio DJ who works for K-Rock in LA and also for Sirius, was kind of the intro to the performance, right? And she got up there and gave a little speech and she said, this is going to be one of those moments when people say, were you there when? Uh, and everyone in this room will be able to say, yes, I was in the room when Counting Crows played the Troubadour Theater. And I mean, you could not have gotten people more pumped because we were all just nodding our head into an agreement. Like, that's right. We're here. We're about to see history. And with that, the band comes down this very small staircase to get on this tiny stage in a room that's no bigger than a one bedroom apartment with a loft to play what is ostensibly going to be the concert of our lives. So before we get into that, um, let's meet our guest. I am really excited to welcome uh, my good friend and uh, a fan of the podcast, a friend of the podcast, not a fan, you're not quite a fan yet, um, Mr. Ryan Fowler to the pod. Ryan, welcome to the podcast. Uh, before we get a lot of your thoughts here, which I'm excited to do, I just want to give a brief bio for folks. In addition to being my good friend, the person who introduced me to the Counting Crows, which makes you the right person for this job. You also have some experience in music. You worked in the radio business, more on the business side, but you did have uh, workings with, with musicians and music and promotions, uh, as well as working for an amphitheater uh, in the Northern California area, where you obviously were exposed to a lot of music and, and live shows and everything else. So you definitely have some expertise to bring to bear. Um, but, but welcome. Thanks for coming on. Thank you for having me, Graham. It is a, an honor to be on your first show. I appreciate it. Excellent. I imagine you'll be a leading figure in many of these podcasts. Specifically, you know, if we do a Blink-182 deep dive, there's no one else I would call. Yeah, I'm your guy. No <laughs> doubt. <laughs> Excellent. Well, before we get into some specific questions, what are your thoughts about the title of this podcast, The Troubadour Travesty? Because you... You know, I I love the title of it. I, I, I LOL'd when I saw what you had titled the the podcast and it's perfect for your relationship with the band and specifically with Adam Duritz because there's this expect ever since okay you know what let's go back to the beginning so I think you and I started listening to this band in right around 1993 because I believe my brother told us about it right I believe that's correct yes okay so my brother told us about it because he was living in Northern California at the time and that's that's where they started. So he told like us about Battle of the Bay Area um, bands or something like that. Exactly. He was one of those Bay Area bands that I think he was, I think he was in college at the time. So they were probably big on college radio or whatever it may be. And so he passed that on to us and you and I started to listen to it and we became like completely committed to the band <laughs> When we first heard them, I mean, we were all about the band almost. It was one of those things where I feel like everyone else in our orbit wasn't really feeling it. And the fact that so many people were not into it made us more into it. It was just kind of a, one of those I agree. I guess, teenage rebellion um, sort of situations that we had. And we just started to get I mean, as we started to just listen to August and everything after on a loop just over and over again. And, you know, it was perfect for us because it was. It was a band that we could bond over. It had a good slate of these kind of dark songs that I think 
as tortured teenagers like we were at the time. We totally resonated with, even though, you know, in hindsight, probably we, we had no idea what we were talking about. But those songs meant something to us when we first heard them. Right. It was definitely out of the ordinary. It wasn't, you know, it was it was away from the Pearl Jams that a lot of people were listening to. It was more of that kind of folk classic feeling rock that um, that was different than what was going on. So you and I got way into it back then. We've had what I'd say is like a tortured relationship, at least from a live perspective. We've had a tortured relationship with the band because I think you and I have had tickets. You've seen them. I, I will preface this by saying your commitment to the band is is much more than what my commitment to the band over the years has been based on the number of shows that you've gone to, the meet and greets, the the travel that you did to go see the band. You're, you've, you've given a lot to the Counting Crows, much more than I have. Some would say too much. Some would say too much, yeah. Um, and I think you and I have had tickets for five shows um, uh, to go to together over the years. A couple of them were phenomenal. We saw them at the Warfield. That was phenomenal. The, the, the best Counting Crows show I ever saw was at the Wiltern in L.A. in 2002, 2003, something like that. That was That's like its own story because of the, the, the post-concert experience. But yeah. The, 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 the tortured relationship that you, have, you and I have had is based on the fact that of those five shows, two of those five shows were canceled on the day that we were supposed to go to the show. The first one being 1994, when like the band was just starting to get big. And you and I were like the guys that had been listening to the Counting Crows before anyone else that we knew at least had really gotten into it. And they were starting to get big and they were playing at the, I think the Palace Theater in New Haven. It was in like December of 94. And you and I were like bragging to everybody at school that we're going to do this thing. We were so amped up. It was one of the first concerts I had ever been to. And we we're like, I mean, that day we're amped up to go to the show. And at some point we found out maybe on the radio, it was announced that they had pulled the plug on the show that day and we're not going to reschedule. Right. So right off the bat, we had this like bad Counting Crows live experience that was, you know, was was somewhat validated when that's the first one I ever saw was that 1996 show for Recovering the Satellites, I think at the, the Hartford Amphitheater, if I'm not mistaken. Thank you. And then years later, I think 2019, maybe 2020, you and I had tickets to go see the Counting Crows and Matchbox 20, if I'm not mistaken. Yes. You had actually flown up from Southern California to Northern California to come join me for the show. I picked you up at the airport. We had gone to the hotel to check in. We had gone out to the liquor store to get we a left our families for the behind. show. What's that? We left our families behind. We left everyone behind. I mean, we, I, I think for the both of us, it was the first time we'd actually gotten out of the house in months. So <laughs> yes. like, this was a big deal. And someone from the radio station that I knew called me at like three o'clock that day and said, tonight's show with the Counting Crows has been canceled. I said, what? And he said, yeah, show's canceled. We looked into it a little bit more. If you remember the weird story, they were bringing the bus for the Counting Crows behind the stage. I guess there's a long, windy road that you have to drive behind the Shoreline Amphitheater, kind of a hilly up and down road to get to the back of the stage. And the bus got stuck or something and they couldn't get the gear to the stage. So they just canceled the show altogether. Yes. So just, I mean, 
amazing shows in there, but also a, a history of bad luck when it comes to seeing the Counting Crows live um, is, is, has been our experience with it. So and you you know, when it that. came to this yeah. show, yeah. the series show, I, I, I heard about it because I, I have the series app on my phone. Right. I got a pop-up that said, enter for tickets to go see the Counting Crows at the right. Troubadour, which sounds amazing because you're right. It's like 500 people, super small, usually very small bands are playing there. Yeah. Um, and I think I contacted you about it and said, had you heard anything about this? And I was super pumped up because I remember two or three years ago before this is, this is going to make me look a little uncool, but two or three years ago before the stadium tour with Def Leppard and Motley Crue went out, Please. Def Leppard did a serious show, I think at the Roxy in LA. Oh, and wow. I was sitting there thinking like, that would be so amazing to go see. And then I saw that the counting crows were doing it. And I thought, most this people, would be incredible to go see. Most people listening would say that that sounds actually much cooler than the County Crush with the Troubadour. Yeah. yeah, I guess so. <laughs> but yeah, um, yes. Yeah, so you were the one. So I mean, a lot to unpack there, and I think definitely a deep dive uh, needed later in terms of just the shows you've mentioned specifically that we've seen together that were really good. I believe I owe you a lot of credit because your brother did introduce us to the County Crows. I remember buying the first CD and then thinking to myself, I don't like it. The guy's voice is too whiny. Returning it at the music store and getting the Smashing Pumpkins CD, which had Today on it. And that was like cool, but it was like a little too heavy for me. And I went back and got the County Crows CD and then just became totally infatuated. So obviously, oh, a lot to you. I also think you're the one that got the tickets to that 94 show, um, which you used to have to like walk up to buy, I believe. So, you know. Definitely, um, you know, you helped usher in my fandom, which is good. And you're right. I think you've said before and you were leading into it, but like I have high expectations for these shows. And so when the Troubadour show came around, I don't know, would you say that there was any possible way that they could have met my expectation? <laughs> there is nothing Adam Duritz has done in his entire life that has met your expectations for what you want from Adam Duritz. It's, it's a seriously toxic relationship that you have with him because <laughs> he's not aware we're in it, by the way. Exactly. It's a one, it's a completely one-sided relationship, right? But it's always been, it's the strangest thing to, to watch from afar because you love Duritz. You love this band, but yet anytime you invest anything into them, whether it's time, money, travel, you always talk about how they're going to let you down again this is going to be a disappointment. And time after time again, you, you walk away from an experience with Duritz being disappointed, upset with, with the outcome of it, but you just keep going back to the trough and keep feeding and feeding. <laughs> it's, it's, it's very, it's not healthy. Well, listen, that's true. But just like the little kid whose dad doesn't show up to play catch with him at the field, it had been <laughs> a long enough time. So I, I wasn't going to necessarily start here, but like for this show, I really didn't see disappointment coming, to be totally honest with you, right? I felt like this particular show, there was no possible way that they were going to let me down, right? So I was, I, I couldn't have, I, and by the way, they walked down the stairs. So kind of getting into the show now, they're walking down the stairs. I'm thinking like, this is incredible. This is a big band. There's like seven people. They fill amphitheaters with sound. They're going to play on this tiny stage. I was l actually concerned that they were going to like blow the roof off this place. Right. So 
They come down and they start with Goodnight Elizabeth, which, by the way, is one of my favorite songs, if not my favorite Counting Crows song. So now I've got the Cap Corbett intro. I've got Cindy Crawford, who was post plastered all over my walls as a kid. I've got Bill Simmons, who I'm a huge Ringer fan. Uh, I actually saw him before the show and bought him a drink at the at the restaurant next door. Like I'm I'm peaking right now, and they're playing Cap. They're playing Goodnight Elizabeth, and I'm thinking to myself. Please, God, play this song all the way through, because for the last five to 10 years, they have been doing this alternate version where they play Pale Blue Eyes, this other song, which is fine. Right. But the cat, but the song Good Elizabeth by itself is awesome. And in years past, they would do creative things like add other alts to this song, including like Chelsea, uh, famously at the Hammerstein Ballroom and some other, you know, cr- like a a Christmas kind of story or a sad Christmas story that he used to interject. So like some famous alts. So we're going through like, there's so many ways that this could go. That would be awesome. There's really only one that I hope doesn't happen. And as we get to the end of Dan's guitar solo and they start going linger on, I was like, Oh, come on. I mean, I just, I just expected more, right. I just was hoping that this might be different, you know? And so, um, you know, I guess what I would ask you is, is like, does that bother you? Like, does that, does that make you feel like this is lazy? Cause to me, it feels lazy. It feels like you had this opportunity with this tiny show. Now we're only one song in, so I'm still like really happy. Like they sound great, but like, you know, if you hear the same alternate version, does it make you think like, you know, the band's just not, it used to feel like they were just improvising on the fly, you know? And I feel like we lost that a while ago. How, How do you feel about that? Yeah, you know, <clears throat> I remember when they first when they first got really successful and people would go see them in concert. There were casual fans and we'd be standing next to them at, our, at a concert or we'd hear about it afterwards would be, you know, they're there to see Mr. Jones. Right. Right. And some shows they would, you know, this was at the peak of the popularity of Mr. Jones. They would come out and not play Mr. Jones. That made people crazy. Or they play Mr. Jones and interject different lyrics. And people are like, why are they changing the song so much? And they would take other songs and shift the arrangements or do alts with different songs. And for like super fans, it was awesome. Like not knowing where the band was gonna go on a night to night basis and being surprised and knowing that you could see something really special with them doing something different or Duritz going off on some tangent, whatever it may be made the whole experience really, really cool. But like you said, if they're doing, if they've been doing Goodnight Elizabeth slash Pale Blue Eyes, this exact same way when they play Goodnight Elizabeth for years, that's, it feels very forced in like the band's like, Hey, we're still those guys because you probably don't follow us every night and what we're playing on, on a set list from a set list perspective, but for the hardcore fans who do know, they're seeing they've been playing Goodnight Elizabeth slash Pale Blue Eyes, and that's been the only version they've been playing of that song for years. That feels a little forced and a little bit lazy. Yeah. I totally agree. And I think that, you know, again, they sounded good. Those I thought his voice actually sounded good. And that's a good song because it's not like super heavy, but there's a guitar solo. It was interesting when they did the Pale Blue Eyes linger on. Emmy, who has become much more of a focal point in this band, right? Starts going nuts on his guitar, blows his amp. And so now they're just standing there, you know, in a very close space, a little harder to improvise that nothing's happened when like there's a tech running on stage trying to fix the thing. And they're like, Dan, you play. You could hear Adam say to Dan, like, Dan, you take it. So he just starts playing whatever. And I was like, 
maybe this is someone trying to tell you something. Maybe you should have just played the song that Dan plays and Amy could get his later. But so anyway, they go through this version. I'm still like, fine, whatever. And then at this point, Adam is going to speak. And I had been emailing and texting you, uh, some of our other friends, Chris, who will be on at some point. You know, I spoke to my wife about it, kind of trying to guess what Adam's speech would be. And I was really hoping that it would be a speech like how important the show was to them and how they're back to their second home and how he used to bartend at the Viper Room and the guy Dave would let him in at the door, whatever. You know, like I was really hoping for that. Instead, what we got was, hey, my voice doesn't really sound good because I'm sick, which we're like peaking in the audience. So we're like, Ugh. and then he's like, yeah, but I know it's not COVID because I had COVID two weeks ago when we were in Australia. And everyone's like, COVID, like we're trying to like move on from COVID. Now, granted, we're standing as close as humanly possible to each other. It's hard to tell if he's making a joke about COVID or what's going on, but like no one wants to be talking about that at this point. We're trying to be like, we're in the moment of seeing, you know, the Beatles at Ed Sullivan or something like that, right? Like, this is supposed to be like, and he's, now he's saying his voice sucks and he's sick and it's probably not COVID, but it could be COVID. It was very confusing. And then he's like, anyway, let's keep going, which I just, again, I've had a lot of bootlegs I've, I had at one point a round here collection that was 10 CDs of all just round here, different versions in all the shows I've seen. He's spoken. How many times that you've seen them live has when Duritz has spoken, has it met the moment that you were hoping it would meet? Oh gosh. I mean, the fact that like nothing comes to mind. <laughs> makes me think there haven't been many moments. Is that the indicator? that I thought were perfect. I will say this in regard, cause I didn't hear the speech cause I wasn't at the show. I've just, I've seen clips online from the show. I thought he sounded fine. Okay. So, you know, that's, that's a possibility. And I think, yeah. So I thought he sounded fine too, which was weird. It's like when someone who's a comedian or an actor is like, Oh, sorry, I just missed my line. And you're like, we have no idea. We're totally bought in. Like, you don't need to say that. Also, I thought it was weird for the serious people to be like, we're putting on this private show for the Counting Crows. And he's like, later on in the show, he's like, oh, you're the serious people will get to hear how bad my voice actually sounds. And again, we're all like, we don't know that. It sounds fine to us. I would say that realistically, there are some bootlegs of him doing speeches where he's talking about being a dishwasher. And he's like, I want to be a rock and roll star. And like, hey, mom, look at me. Like that whole thing. Like, those are awesome. I've personally never really seen him deliver a speech like that. It's always been like, dude, just just minimize and give us what what we want. Just say, this is really important to us. We're going to put on a killer show. Thank you so much for being fans for 30 years. And here you go. That's just get out of the way. So he's kind of a reluctant, um, kind of a reluctant rock star in many ways, which I think is its own podcast separately. But well, you know, uh, if you think about it, I mean, considering your run of bad luck, or at least our run of bad luck, I wasn't at at the show with you uh, at the Troubadour. But if he wasn't doing this for serious, I bet there's a very good chance they probably would have canceled that show considering he was sick. Right. Well, that's I actually thought about that. I thought we're going to get a canceled show. And in fact, we did get a canceled. um, uh, Sorry, I'm I'm losing my mind here. They didn't do an encore. Basically, they just walked up. He said in lieu of an encore, we'll play you a couple more and we'll walk off. And it's like, okay, so like right away, we're like, this guy's going to have a bad voice. He's sick and we're not going to get an encore. It's like awesome. (laughs) Super. Let's just take all the magic and suck it right out of this place. But 
Anyway, uh, I digress. So moving through the set list, let's just take a little walk through the set list as we start going through. I don't know if you have it pulled up. So we go from from Goodnight Elizabeth, and then we go right into what's the second song that we, we went right into here? So they went into Hard Candy next. Great song. Place is still going nuts. So far, so good, right? Song three. Mr. Jones. Place is going nuts. I've seen that song a million times. I don't even like it that much anymore. It crushed. Every single person in that room was going bananas. And when they did the, she's not looking at you, you know, she's looking at me, they threw, like, they looked up at Cindy Crawford and it was just like, we're here. Like, we're doing it. This is like, how cool could this be? So we're crushing it. All right. So Mr. Jones. And by the way, if the County Crows wanted to make people happy with their set list, just pull up in your Spotify playlist and just play the top songs. Don't overthink it. Like, <laughs> the public has spoken. If you look at Spotify, it's like 640 million people have played Mr. Jones. The number two song, which I believe is Accidentally Love, is like 240 million. So it's a pretty big drop between the casual fan and then, like, you know, it moves on down. Anyway, uh, after that, we move into what's – what do we have for number four? I, I love this song. I think I – think, I think... You and I disagree on this one because I love the song Colorblind. Okay. I understand it's a hit. People like it. It's just it's not my favorite. But it's a it's a good song. I wasn't I was like, this makes sense. I think there's people here that want to hear Colorblind. Would you say it's a top ten County Gross song? Maybe. I mean <laughs> top not, Yeah. It's it's not like a that wasn't a curveball. I, I felt like that was a good song, right? And I understand he needs to take a break. Now Again, his voice sounded fine. It was a little clear at this point that like it was starting to go out, um, but it wasn't. But it was still okay. All right. So then we go from there, and then we get, what's next? Miami. Well, before we go on to the next one, I will say, looking yeah. at their set list from the last two years, yeah, we talked. You, you talked about lack of improvisation, kind of going through the motions. Yeah, they pretty much play Hard Candy, Mister Jones, Colorblind every single show in the two, three, four slot. Right. Right. It's for what, for like a decade, probably, if you went back, they're going to play those. Exactly. Right. exactly. So, right. so, so that was, you know, they're keeping the structure of what they've done the last couple of years so far in the set list, which it's is, pal- song, which is palatable by the way, because they're all good songs, but anyway, and I yeah. now have the set list pulled up. So thank you for my lack of preparation. Go ahead. Fifth song mm-hmm. is where things could get interesting right now. They get to go into like, let's dive into our catalog. It seems like, again, looking at, at the last couple of years, they kind of they, they usually start off with something different every night. So you got the Good Night Elizabeth, Pale Blue Eyes. Sometimes they'll do Round Here. They'll do other things in that opening slot. Then they pretty much always do Hard Candy, Mr. Jones, Colorblind in some order there between two, three, and four. Then five, six, and seven tend to kind of be a, a mixed bag as well. For you at the Troubadour, song number five was Butterfly in Reverse. <laughs> <laughs> Which literally when I had been texting you and others saying, I can't wait for him to disappoint me at this show and say, ladies and gentlemen, butterfly in reverse. And then he actually played it to a confused look on many people who are even pretty hardcore fans. Yeah. I, I was worried. I was concerned. Yeah, that was that was that was their first misstep of the night, I'd say. I, I totally agree. And I, I gave I don't hate that song. But I certainly wouldn't put it in the 15 song set list at the most iconic theater that you're probably going to play for the rest of your career. So they play that. Then they go to Recovering Satellites, which, by the way, is I think is a great song. 
and they really rock out. Now, this is where my fears of their power in this small place were now like uh, viscerally experienced. I mean, my ears, I play drums for a while in a basement with no padded walls. I have terrible hearing and it was really bothersome how loud it was. And again, it was at this moment where I was like, Recovering Sound is a great song. People were totally into it. But I was like, did anyone say, hey, let's maybe mix in like an acoustic set at the show? Or, hey, let's do a stand-up bass tonight because it's a small venue. Or let's do something like we used to do. They used to do that. I mean, they had, if you look at their album sales, it's like seven times platinum for August Everything After. Two times platinum for uh, Recovering the Satellites. One times platinum for This Desert Life. And then it goes down pretty progressively from there. But like the double album of acoustic across a wire and then the live show, if you didn't have that in college back in the day, who were you really? I mean, everybody had that album and it's to see them not even like think of that or address that or try to do that, particularly when people like Taylor Swift are on tour now or doing these breakout acoustic sets and people are like, this is crazy. She does it every night. Like these guys, they didn't invent it, but they, they perfected it back in the day. And to me, mm-hmm. people's ears were bleeding at this point. They were still smiling, but it was really, really loud. And I felt like Duritz was screaming, which wasn't helping his vocal problems. So, well, you know, for, for them doing this show that's going to be broadcast on Sirius and doing it in this iconic theater that very, very few people were lucky enough to get tickets for, I don't think you're wrong in thinking they do something a little special there in the middle. Right. I guess the argument can be made, well, let's give them what they're going to get on tour. But then that would be like, well, do you want people to come to your shows? Because mm-hmm. this is what you've been doing for the last 10 years. And every time I go, I call you and say, I'm very disappointed. <laughs> uh, okay. Next, I play Miami. I think it's a good song. Fine. People liked it. People liked it. I was like, okay, we're still doing pretty well here. Seven songs in, we've had like one kind of stinker. So now my, my, I love Miami. I guess I like Miami more than you do. And it's a, it's a loud, fast song. Was it, was it too loud and too fast for the room? It was a little early. Yeah. Normally that's a little later in the show, kind of even a closer or an encore. So yeah, it was a little loud. And also like there's some keyboard parts in that, that in a big amphitheater are not so like, it was like a little, you know, it was, it was, um, it sounded a little funky. I could see, I could see Charlie like, doing this mix on his, you know, on his keyboard or something. So it was a little, a little odd, but I mean, still like fine. Good song. Okay. Here's where the set list takes a a wrong turn in my opinion. So we go eight, nine, 10, 11, the tall grass, elevator boots, angel of 14th street and Bobby and the rat Kings. That is the butter miracle suite one, which is their most recent release, which I think was like two years ago at this point. And you know, from my perspective, having seen all those live um, and used them as bathroom or beer breaks, uh, <laughs> I was not thrilled to hear that. Some of them actually sound, but like the Tall Grass, which is a, a truly terrible song in my opinion, actually sounds decent in person. And Elevator Boots, I'm fine with. Again, maybe it's the 47th best counting grow song or something. But to do the whole EP, which I know that's what it's intended to be, play it from start to finish, it's a story. It's a story no one wants to hear or read, really, as far as I'm concerned. So uh, to take four songs out of 15 and make them four songs. And by the way, the place shut down at that point. I mean, not only did people go to the bathroom, but it was totally quiet. My friend was there was on Instagram at some point. I mean, it shut down. So what's the rationale, Ryan, for four songs mid-set? 
new this, what are they trying to do sell more butter miracle sweet like what what's happening this is the curse of being a Cat and crows fan is because those high highs of Duritz being this phenomenal artist on like another level than the rest of us makes her some amazing moments. Those some of the moments we've talked about from past shows, but also as an artist, he gets these projects and he gets these songs and these concepts and those become his baby. I mean, Butterfly in Reverse is a great example. I don't know of anyone that likes Butterfly in Reverse, but if you look at the last two years, they play it often maybe like every other show they're playing butterfly in reverse and you would think at some point as an entertainer you would look at the audience and see the audience reaction and i'm sure it's not a good reaction right from the audience when they play songs like butterfly in reverse and say okay you know the ticket pain audience is not really feeling what we're doing right now maybe we should maybe we should pull back butterfly in reverse a little bit but he doesn't do that like he gets so attached to certain songs or certain projects that he's, he's going to, you know, he's going to shove it down your throat, whether you like it or not. And and Butter Miracle, like you said, it's fine. I, I've listened to it. It's, I don't remember a whole lot about it. Um, <laughs> I don't think it was great when I listened to it. It's a, it's, it's a cool idea, I guess, trying to tell a story through these four songs. But like you said, for a special event like this, where you got 15 songs and what is that, a fourth of the show is the Butter Miracle EP that, as you said, the room is emptying. And I'm sure the room has been emptying for the last two years that they've been touring with this album. Right. And they don't read the room and say, you know, maybe you cut it down to two of the four songs. But he is so hung up on this concept of start to finish. The Tall Grass is the first chapter. Bobby and the Rat Kings is the fourth chapter. And that's our that's our novel here. You're going to have to ride this out with us. Just seems seems a little self-serving. Okay, I I could not say it better, and I don't need to say a lot more on it. What I will say is, I think it's emblematic of some other part of Counting Crow's legacy that cannot be overlooked, which is that, and it's another podcast, but it's like at some point in control, you need to have a strong uh, willed person with a conviction to be in the same room as some of these like rock stars, right? Because they think this is great. This is how we're going to do it. You need someone else like the producer for August and everything after to come in and be like, we're going to try it a little something different, you know? And I think that you're going to get something out of this more than you expect. So someone to like push back a little bit, because I think what's happened is that there's no one to push back. So if Duritz is like, we're going to do the whole album. No one's like, how about we do two? Can we do two of the four? Like someone should be like raising their hand. I don't know if that's happening behind the scenes, but like I think personally that the Counting Crows career trajectory would have been much different had there been someone in the room that had a point of view that could just step in and be like, we can't do this. Are we trying to get people to come to our concerts this year? Look at like what Billy Joel and some of these other stars have done. They've literally even opened it up to you vote for the songs, you hear them. And if you see a Billy Joel concert, it's still awesome. And he might play a weird song, but that weird song is like Vienna, which is still an awesome song. You're not going to get you know, deep cuts off of like the river of dreams album that no one liked, right? Like he's going to give you what you want. Whereas Duritz just will not do it. And so that's why as a fan, it pisses me off. Cause I'm like, ticket prices are not cheap anymore. They're charging up to like $600 in Los Angeles for their meet and greet packages. Like at least you could do is play the songs I like, you know, but anyway, 
I digress. It is interesting how many of those guys have been in the band for so long. And it still is, I mean, you can tell it's still very much Adam Duritz is the boss. Yeah. I mean, he's, he's the Springsteen of the Counting Crows. They follow his lead. They, right. They've hitched a wagon to Duritz for better or for worse. Right. And, you know, we have moments like we talked about where there's stuff that, you know, the band knows that right. the fans aren't feeling it, but they keep doing it. They keep doing it. And I think you're right. And I think that is an idea for a future podcast. There's that one video. It's like a, a I don't know what it is, like a documentary where Charlie says, look, when I was in the audience back in the day in Berkeley and Duritz sang around here for the first time, I just knew this guy had a gift. And when I was asked to be part of the band, I just knew we'd be all right as long as we let this guy like write the songs and lead the way. And so basically they've been doing that for 30 years. And so that's I get it. But like, it's too bad. You know, uh, people like David Bryson are just standing in the corner now. <laughs> he's like, <laughs> he's like, I stopped writing songs four albums ago. And I, we've had a little bit of a downturn since then. So he's completely in the shadows now, isn't he? He doesn't even, he's there, but he's only there in his physical, like, appearance. That's it. I mean, if you look at the songwriting credits for him, they end, like, after the Hard Candy album. And that doesn't surprise me. Like, um, I think he has some of the magic sauce that was part of their, some of their best songs. So, yeah, Amy is like, here I am. I've got this jewel on my forehead. Anyway. Well, that's an interesting one, is the, the, the change that took place within... It appears there was a change in the power dynamic or the hierarchy within the Counting Crows when Immergluck came in and became a regular member of the band. That became Duritz's guy. Right, 100%. And everyone else kind of fell to the side. And you can talk about that another time. But yeah. things, if there's anyone who has a voice with Duritz, it's Immergluck, and he doesn't seem to be using it much. So I totally agree. I mean, he literally set him on stage right next to himself, and he took yep. all the guitar parts. So, yeah, yep. clearly. Yep. So, I agree. That's another one. So. They finish up Rain King, good song. Obviously, people were totally into that. They did the same alt ver or like ending in that one. I forget, um, I forget what it is off the top of my head, but it's the same thing they've been doing for a decade. Then they did a long December, another opportunity for Duritz to talk about how he lived up the street and at this house, and they did this. No, didn't really get into it. He's like, I'm not feeling too good. Uh, this isn't going to sound that good. We're going <laughs> to skip the encore. And at this point, I was like, maybe I should just leave now. Beat traffic. <laughs> uh, they did Long December. That was cool. Then they played Hanging Around, which I'll tell you was actually the right choice for this crowd because it's people, again, that he probably hung out with back in the day. We're in Los Angeles. I've been bumming around this town too long. Everyone really got into that. Again, brutally loud, but like good. And then Holiday in Spain, which is a good song. I do like Holiday in Spain. I think it had its moment, though. I don't know that I needed to hear. I would have liked to see Murder of One, Up All Night. Um, I mean, I don't know. You could pick through. I would have even preferred Scarecrow at some point during this set. Oh, God. <laughs> so anyway, and then they wrap it up and that was it. And they said, you know, good night. Um, and we kind of all shuffled out. And, you know, I had similar conversations around the set list with a few of the people that were standing near me. And I, it was it was, I think, in retrospect, it was a good show. But like nothing special. And I'm really kind of, if I'm serious XM, I'm kind of wondering like, did these guys just mail it in? Like, is that what, what we just witnessed? Like, are they going to drive ticket sales to the dashboard confession? Like no special guest. No, hey, we're here in LA and out comes, you know, I don't even know who it would be. If it was Duritz, he'd pick some obscure band we didn't know. If it was someone yeah. else, they'd pick, like Billy Joel had Axl Rose come out and do, um, oh gosh, I forget. He, he did, uh, 
It's all, it's always, it's still rock and roll to me. And he, and he yeah. sang, he's like, my friend Axl Rose, and the place was like, Oh my God. Durant's yeah. would be like, here's my friend, John Johnson from the Gigolo. <laughs> and be like, God. So anyway, um, you know, I know we got to wrap up here shortly, but I guess anything you wanted to hit on before we. Before yeah. You know, a couple things come to mind. The, the, the last four songs, although hit songs, rain King, long December, hanging around holiday in Spain, Again, pretty much how they're wrapping up every show mm-hmm. is with three or three of those four songs or four of those four songs. The songs that you and I love, Murder of One, um, Angel of the Silences, the plug yes. version of Angels of the Silences are just rocking songs. They haven't played those, from what I can tell, in years. Have you seen me lately? Have you seen me lately? It, it's and then the the thing that jumped out too to me was thinking about this package tour this summer it, it to me it's 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 the perfect package with them and dashboard confessional i think it's like the the fact the two of them haven't gone out before to me is is really surprising right I think it's a great package i do wonder though if looking at the last couple of years when they were playing 20 to 22 shows in, or 20 to 22 songs a night and they played only played 15 was that just a serious radio thing or are they cutting back the number of songs they're going to play this summer because they have like a legit kind of co-headline band playing with them that they're going to give more time to. It'll be interesting to see what that tour looks like when they roll out as far as the mix of, of who's getting how much time. I agree. It's a great call out because this was in promotion of the tour, right? And obviously Caraba has said that he was a huge Counting Crows fan and that he that's like one of his influences, right? Kind of to emo was the Counting Crows, which totally makes sense because you and I sitting in – about the nicest place to grow up and safest place to grow up, like crying in our basements about to the County Crows music, you know, uh, is something that clearly would have inter- in, would have influenced the Dashboard Confessional. But I agree. I was like, is this one of those co-headlining tours where ultimately the County Crows start opening for Dashboard? Because I heard I heard people online saying, oh, Dashboard's going to play 60 minutes and then County Crows is going to come on for a couple hours. And I'm like, listen, Dashboard has a lot of good songs and I've seen them live. They're pretty good. Um, and they have some diehard fans. So... I would be. I am interested to see that. I think the Matchbox Twenty show. The reason that that was such a great concert is because I really like Matchbox Twenty, and they played like twenty five songs, all of their like hits, and the place was going nuts. So I, I'm really interested to see how this shakes out. Can Duritz hold up at this point? I mean, every tour they've had, I feel like recently he's he's going down or something. So I, I don't. I, I'm really kind of interested to see what happens. I mean. <laughs> We'll give it a shot this summer. We'll see. I mean, I, I'm, I, you know, Are I, you I think to see this tour for the County Crows or Dashboard Confessional, because that's what I was going to ask you. Like I had it earlier here to talk about, but like, what's your value proposition for seeing them anymore? For me, I actually had stopped last year. I said I was never going to see them again. I only went because you told me about the show and the venue is so iconic. Now, I did wind up buying tickets for the summer tour. But I'll be honest, as soon as I stepped out of the Troubadour, I thought I have to sell my tickets. Like, why would I go <laughs> do this again? So for you, what's what's in it for you? I It's like 50-50 for me, honestly. It's like I'm just as excited to see both bands. What, what I worry about is that they're going to try to do a co-headline thing and Dashboard comes out there and does an hour of the hits. Counting Crows comes out and does an hour 15 kind of like what you saw the other night where we know what the set list is going to be night after night. There's no real surprises. There's no real change. I'm sure they'll, you know, I think Duritz is saying a couple songs with that dashboard confessional. That'll be cool. I got to think they'll do 
those duets. That would so be long, see. so long. Exactly. I mean, they've got some really good songs that they've done together. So that'll be that'll be cool to see. But at this point, like, I'm just as excited to see Dashboard Confessional. My expectations are going to be low for Counting Crows. I'm kind of expecting them to roll out the same set list with, you know, four songs from Butter Miracle again. And just kind of knowing what I'm getting myself into as I walk into the building. I don't think there's any better way to end this podcast. Uh, and that really is what it was. I should have known better walking into that building what I was going to get from Counting Crows because <laughs> for the last decade, they've done nothing but exactly what they did. So I, um, you know, I also, I've got these tickets to see the show. They were not cheap. Um, hopefully we, we'll get to see one together finally and they won't cancel it. I'd like to think they're going to go back after this, maybe get some feedback, maybe listen to it themselves and say, hey, what can we do to improve? However, I don't know what proof I have that any of that is going to happen. I would assume they're going to do exactly what you said, which is roll the same set list out. And I think the real interesting dynamic is the dashboard piece, because I think dashboard has some really good songs and having seen them before live, they're really good. So um Hopefully they more than hold up their end of the bargain because I think they're going to need to. But uh, <laughs> <anyway>. <laughs> hopefully we're not talking about counting crows as like a casino act in five years. <laughs> yeah, I mean, honestly, what's the end game here? Like, if this was a chance for a rebirth and they just played the same thing again, I mean, I guess people listening are probably like, "Dude, you're the sucker. No one's putting a gun to your head and forcing you to buy these tickets." It's just that those moments that we've had at some of these shows that are so good that make Counting Crows such a unique band. And the fact that how many bands are actually still playing from this generation. Like I saw Pearl Jam recently and they were fine, but like Counting Crows has really held up well. Um, and I just keep hoping for some creative juice and I would have liked to see it at this show. Um, disappointed that I didn't because it seemed like I hit the lottery by getting tickets. Uh, but, you know, I appreciate you saying that um, maybe I should lower my expectations a little bit next time. The landing might be a little softer. Yes, definitely. That's probably the takeaway. Well, Ryan, really appreciate it. Thank you for your time. Thank you for your insights. We're definitely going to have you back on again as you and I uh, break down more Counting Crows related things. And maybe we'll move on to some like Matthew Sweet or something else that's more in your wheelhouse as well. Um, but uh, thank you very much. And uh, let's talk soon. <laughs> Thanks, Graham. All right. See you, buddy. Bye.